Hello and welcome to the Mythological Africans podcast, where we read and talk about stories from African mythology and folklore. I am your host, Helen Day. Episodes of this podcast come from live recordings of the Mythological African Storytime Sessions, which take place every Friday evening at 5 p.m. Eastern Time U.S. in the Mythological African's Twitter space. In this episode, we explore the topic of race in folklore. So thank you all for making time. This is super exciting. I'm happy to see you all. Um, we're still here on Twitter, even though things seem topsy-turvy. But I, I thought today we should take a look at a couple of stories that explore the topic of race in folklore. Because well, what what is true about folklore is that a lot of the stories are incorporating the community's experience and making sense of the things that the people go through, you know, giving people a way to process new and different experiences or things that, you know, took things one way or another. And I imagine the arrival of Europeans in many communities was, you know, one of those seismic shifts, you know, great paradigm shifts, which fundamentally changed how people see themselves. And it would be odd if this wasn't reflected somewhere in the folklore. So, there, there are a couple that I know just because I grew up hearing them. So the, the, the Balinyonga story, for example, is one I heard from when I was little. And I wasn't able to find the story itself. I know I've seen it somewhere online, but I can't find it exactly. But I have a, a short excerpt from a history book about, you know, the encounter that spawned the story. And I can tell you guys the story very briefly. But then the, the contact between, you know, people of different races is old it's like something that has been happening a lot in the northern part of the continent so in libya algeria morocco egypt that part of the the african continent has always had back and forth between people across different races so there is a lot of folklore that reflects that and also reflects the prejudices that that have come out of those encounters so we'll read and talk about a couple and then we'll have uh, one from the kunu people in guinea which it's just a very interesting story because it delves into the topic of race, but you know, in a in a very interesting way, and it makes me wonder about a few things. But I'll I can't wait to hear your thoughts about it. So thank you all again. Great to have you in the room. Um, welcome, Maya. I'm going to give you the ability to speak if you're interested in speaking. Uh, there is no obligation to. Um, so today we have one story from the Kunu in Guinea. We have one story from Libya. We have uh, one story from Algeria, which is a bit long, but we'll see if we can get to it. And then we have the short excerpt from the, the Balinyonga people in Cameroon. So we'll, we'll jump right into it. And I should note that uh, the story from Libya is uh, one of the stories which I am retelling in The Runaway Princess and Other Stories. So you will have to wait for the book to hear my retelling of that, but that that, that was nice to find. And I, um, I did that because I replaced a retelling of the myth of Lamia 
because if you read the ancient text, the the no ancient text, listen to that. If you read the literature around Lamia, the the creature, it is said that she was a Libyan queen. But everything that I could possibly find about her came from uh, Europe, Southern European folklore. So um, Roman folklore, that part of the world. There is nothing that I could see from what I had. I was able to find in Libya about her. So I. Just I didn't want to include um, that 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 figure in the book because then I, I would be basically retelling European folklore and that's not the point of the book. So I replaced that with this this story, the brightest sun, but you know told it a bit differently. So hope, hopefully you guys will like it. But let's get going. And how about we let's start with the Kunu story. And uh, this story is found in. Uh, Mochi Ofodiles, The Orphan Girl, and other stories, West African folk tales. And there is a link in the in the, the discussion area if you want to read it for yourself, but we'll read it here together. So, yes, Laura, before we start. I, I was just going to say, that is such an excellent book. So if people are interested in a, a great overview of, of West African folk tales from a lot of different mm-hmm. cultures where he provides like some cultural context for them, Really super book. I like that one a lot. It, it really is. If you, like Laura is saying, if you want to get just a sample of what West African folklore has to offer, this is the book. This really is. So thanks for noting that. And we'll start with a bit of cultural context because that's what that's what the book offers, right? So this book, this story is, um, the Kono people use this story to explain why people die. So Sa, death, was a good friend of Alatangana, is the creator being God. And since he was magical, Sa conjured up mud from which Alatangana created the world as we know it. But Sa, that is death, had a beautiful daughter with whom Alatangana eloped without even so much as a dowry. And for Sa's revenge, he takes Alatangana's children whenever he wants them. So this is how death comes about. But in that is, you know, interesting exploration of race and how race came to be. So the story goes, in the beginning, before anything was created, there was only darkness. But there also lived Sa, death, with his wife and daughter. Sa was very magical and could conjure weird things as he pleased. One day, Sa decided to create a sea of mud. Soon after, Alatangana, God, visited him, saying, What a dirty place you have made here. How can you live in such a place? You have no light. You have no plants. You could drown in the mud. But Sa told Alatangana that he did not want, that he did what he could and had no way of making his creation better. So Alatangana helped Sa to make the world look better. He made the mud stronger so that it could be stepped on. But the mud had no life. So he created the stars, the plants and trees and all kinds of animals. And Sa said, This is indeed remarkable. Now the world is greener and filled with life. I like the improvements. You and I should be great friends. And so Sa became friendly with Alatangana. He entertained him and they talked and ate. And the two visited each other regularly and their friendship grew. Over time, Alatangana, who was a bachelor, asked Sa for the hand of his daughter in marriage. But Sa was reluctant to part with his only daughter, and he made all sorts of excuses why Alatangana should not marry her. But Alatangana and the girl were very much in love. Finally, Sa, finally, since Sa would not give his consent to the marriage, Alatangana secretly married the girl. Alatangana and the girl were very happy together. 
They had 14 children, seven boys and seven girls. Four of the boys and four of the girls were of the same race, but the other three boys and three girls were different. The parents were surprised that their children looked so different. Furthermore, they spoke different languages amongst themselves. Their parents didn't understand them. Alatangana was annoyed with this and went to Saar to ask why this was the case. Why is it that my children with your daughter are different? Alatangana asked Saar. They speak in different languages that we cannot understand. Is this of your making? Yes, replied Saar. It is of my making that they are different and speak different languages. That is your punishment for taking my only daughter without my consent and without any dowry. You shall never understand what they say. You have to remove your curse on my children, Sa said, uh, Alatangana said. Sorry, replied Sa, it is too late. But because they are also my children, I will give them gifts to help them live a happy life. To some of them, I have given paper and ink and wisdom. They will be able to put down what they think so that they can help their brothers, sisters and children. To others, I have also given wisdom, strength and tools they need to help their brothers, sisters and children. Go then and have them paired up, a boy of a kind to a girl of the same kind, and disperse them to populate the world. Alatangana was happy that Sa was patient enough to talk with him, given how he had eloped with his daughter. So he accepted what Sa had said. He immediately set for his home, paired up his children, and dispersed them to all parts of the world. They procreated and gave rise to the different peoples and races of the world. But the world was still living in darkness, so Alatangana sent the rooster to Sar. When you get there, ask him what we should do, for the stars are not enough, and the world is still very much in darkness. When Sar saw Alatangana's messenger, he remembered his daughter again, and he was angry all over again. But for the love of his daughter, his anger subsided. You have come a very long journey, Sar told the rooster. Get some rest, while I think of what Alatangana should do about the darkness. When the rooster rested, Sa sent him back to Alatangana saying, When you get back, you should face the east and sing this song. Kokoroko! And on hearing you, the king of the stars shall wake up so that the day will come and the people can go about their business in full light. The rooster was very happy that he had the power to wake up the king of the stars. He thanked Sa and hurried back to Alatangana with the message. When he had rested from his long trip, he faced the east and sang his song. Kokoroko! Directly, there was a faintness of light in the sky. A few moments later, the rooster sang his song again. Kokoroko! And there was something that looked like an outstretched hand. Then the king of the stars, the sun, woke up. And thus the first day was born. The sun was answering the call of the rooster. He traveled across the sky answering the rooster as he called all day. When the rooster became tired and quit calling him, the sun went back to sleep on the other side of the earth and darkness came again. Directly, the stars and the moon came to help people see when the sun went to bed. Then one day, Sa called on Alatangana. In spite of what you have done by taking my only daughter away from me, I have given you light. But you, you have not given me anything for my kindness, not even a dowry for my daughter. In return for all my deeds, you owe me a service. You are right, sir, said Alatangana. I owe you what you shall ask. All right then, replied sir. Since you have taken my daughter without as much as a dowry, I have no more children. In return, 
you must give me one of my grandchildren anytime I call for one. Whenever I want one of them, I will call by the sound of my calabash. The one will hear the rattle of my calabash in his dream. And when he does, he must come running and answer my call. And in keeping with his promise, Alatangana had no choice but to let his children go and answer Sa whenever he called. Thus, even today, Alatangana's children still answer the call of Sa, all because Alatangana didn't pay a dowry when he married Sa's daughter. So quite a lot going on in this story. It's an it's a creation myth, it's a reason for the races, for language, for people of you know various genders, for the sun and the moon and the stars. What are you guys thinking about this one? And welcome, yes. Welcome, Emmanuel. Just making sure everybody has the ability to speak. Yes, yes, thoughts, reactions, comments. I've never seen a characterization of, of death quite like that. I mean, it's it's very positive, right? It is. It's pretty amazing. It is, isn't it? I, I love the complementarity between the death and God. It's basically harkens back to some um, uh, some of the, the mythologies that you go to where death is not necessarily this evil. Death is just a part of the cycle of life. You know, there is no qualification of death as this evil thing that should be avoided and even the way you know death is explained in this story is just you know you sending your grandchildren back to their grandfather i love it i love it yeah i was going to say that i found that a very gentle representation of death mm. um you know it's the god comes calling and invites them Mm -hmm. that's uh like you say very interesting it it really is it really is and any any thoughts on how uh race is presented in the story emmanuel uh i think i think my main focus was mostly on death as well and i pretty much um echo a lot of the sentiments that laura shared like you know in even in greek mythology like death death is kind of like regarded as this like death as the entity is regarded as this boring thing that just does its job that's thanatos and it's mm. like yeah he just happens to be the person in charge of like you know kind of cutting that you know cutting that thread of like people kind of uh leaving the mortal world into like you know mm. but even then a lot of like his value is still like attributed like back to like hades that kind of thing. Right, and, right, you know, right. a, a lot of my interest in like Thanatos was to realize like a lot of his heavy lifting actually goes into like the stuff that happens in Tartarus where he keeps like a ton of like the Titans of Bear and everything. But then you have like, um, what's his name? Plutus. That's um, Hades' son who also kind of gets involved with a lot of that. So it's like, you, but at the end, you kind of get this picture that death or Thanatos is kind of like second fiddle. But in this story, mm. you kind of get a, a, a deeper and a kind of like a, you, you you learn to not necessarily fear him, but then admire, you know, the context of death in in this regard. I mean, in, in this story, death basically creates the world as we know it. Exactly. You know, 
with with of course God, who you know Allah Tangana, who presumably is life, infuses that spark of you know creativity. But the foundation, the basics, you know, foundational, is something created by death, which of course makes sense that we all go back to that. You know that that dust to dust, as they say. It's 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 really a great story, Laura. Well, and. I, we need you, Helen, to write the version of the story from Death's daughter's perspective, right? Because there's this great tantalizing female character in there, right? In the way that, that the story is told, it's the back and forth between the two male figures. But she's clearly an important character here that her father really loves her and she's in love with her husband. And I can just imagine a whole psychodrama from her perspective. You know, Laura, it's so interesting that you say that because I, this is not one of the stories that I include in The Runaway Princess. But as I was reading it to you guys, I'm thinking, man, it would be so cool to hear the story from her perspective. So maybe if we have a volume two of The Runaway Princess, then this will be a story featured in it. But wouldn't it, you know, this girl caught in this drama between these two, like, cosmically powerful entities, one which is her husband and her father, just... But yeah, I want to hear your thoughts about the the race aspect, the language aspect, because there is there is a lot going on there as well. Nathan, that is the um, the aspect I wanted to mention because the you know the very familiar Tower of Babel story also um, has languages and to some degree race arise mm-hmm. as as a curse from from a from a divinity, but in this case the divinity is not cursing the people themselves but rather their their father right right which, right which is an interesting and different spin but it's it also um and and, and <clears throat> it doesn't have as negative a, a a it doesn't seem to cast as negative a, a a light on the concept of now people are different Right, right. That was that was something that that really struck me, Nathan. The fact that well, this is technically a curse, but it was it almost sounded like just you know, Sa being a bit petty, like okay, you want to take my daughter? I'm just gonna make things a little bit harder than you. And then to have Alatangana go back to him, you know, first time I read this, I was like the audacity! Like you stole this man's daughter, and then you're gonna go back to him to complain because you can't understand your children. Um, something something that that came up um, in another version I read, which I, I found very interesting. And it's not highlighted in the story. And I can, I can imagine why it wasn't. But so the way it was set up, the children who received writing and pens and all of that were the white children. And then the children who received tools and, you know, the ability to know the land and work the land were the black children. And my my theory around that is that at the point when the Kunu people were meeting the Europeans, you know, of course, the Europeans came in with books. You know, there are many African peoples who are not lettered people, as they say. It doesn't mean that they didn't have knowledge, like vast amounts of knowledge that they had access to. Um, They were just not lettered in the way that European people were. And so that's that's always an interesting um, tension I want to explore because, for example, in this in this version, the author doesn't you know explicitly state that, but there is um, I think in the uh, Encyclopedia of African Mythology and Folklore, one of those books, it is the, that distinction is made that the people who got you know the writing were the, the 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 white people and the people who got the tools 
were the black people and those were really the only two races that were specified and that's what you will find um, in a lot of uh, folklore that I have come across from the African continent that this black-white dichotomy is very like very strong and um, that just reflects the experience now I don't know if you can think of any Laura but I imagine folklore coming out of East Africa is probably as far as the race aspect is concerned, it's probably more similar to, to Northern Africa because there's, there's been a long, 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 long history of contact. But I, I can't think of any right off the top of my head. Can you? You know, I'll, I'll confess when I read stories like that in the old books that I work on, I'm always so dubious about them because when it's, you know, either white missionaries or white colonial officials collecting these stories and then you've got these people telling the stories not to their normal audience, but to this white audience. I always mm. wonder, uh, you know, is this really a folktale or is it some weird kind of, you know, interpersonal game that's being played out in that context? So I haven't really collected those stories, but they are there. If you poke around, you'll you'll see that um, in in all kinds of story collections from all over Africa, not just the right. uh, the West. There are these stories, especially about technology and the technology mm-hmm. that the white people have. I'm not sure if those are really folktale folktales or if they're a kind of weird anthropological event. I'm really not sure. Right. And that, that poses an interesting question, right? Because if we, we look at other kinds of folktales, like folktales that talk about the introduction of a new um, medicine, a new mask, a new... Um, traditional way of healing a new god these were technically you know types of technologies ways of seeing the world ways of interacting with the world that were being introduced and they would be seamlessly incorporated into the folklore of the people um but then when it comes to this 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 uh intersection of european ideas and european technologies it it raises that question and i think it's fair because of just the 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 toxic, nasty history around all of that. Something I think about is um, the, the Ndowe tales, where you had uh, a deity of the sea who was the one who was able to write and taught his uh, compatriot, the deity of the land, how to do it. And then they had this servant who was going between them and thought, you know, it was magic that was on this paper. I don't know if you remember that story, Laura. That was an awesome story. Yeah. That really good. <laughs> Right. So in, in that story, and I didn't I didn't include it here because it's not, you know, specified that the deity of the sea is not African or is white. But in that story, there was a, a deity of the sea and a, a, a similar deity on the land. And the deity of the sea, which in many, many African traditions has this intersection with European uh, traders and explorers who, especially on the West African coast, um, the deity of the sea is able to read and write and teaches the deity of the land how to do so. So at that time, it's high technology, you know, considered magic in a way. And so the deity of the land sends the deity of the sea uh, some gifts and sends with it a list of what he has sent. But then on, on the way, the servant, you know, thinking that he can, you know, pull one on his master, takes away some of the yams, some of the fish, like, you know, secrets away for himself. And then goes to the guy in the sea and says, hey, you know, my, 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 my master on the land sent this to you. And the guy's like, yeah, but this is not, I'm looking at this paper and what you're giving me is not matching. So what's going on here? And so the two, the, the, the sea deity and the land deity start to play a trick on the servant, basically, <laughs> you know, 
trying to get him to realize that they're onto him and he's just not getting it because he doesn't realize that the the paper is what's communicating and you see this this servant jumping through all kinds of hoops to hide the fact that he's stealing and he still gets caught until um his his master the deity of the land shows him that it's on this paper that we're tracking that so i i i'm not you know i wasn't going to it's a beautiful story and it's available but i i was i'm not going to read it because it's not explicitly about race but what Laura is saying is true. You know, you, you read some of these stories and you're thinking, okay, is this just coming out of that encounter? But the argument could be that, hey, it is reflective of the people's experience, which, you know, pretty much all mythology and folklore is reflective of the people's experiences and how they're making sense of them and incorporating them into their worldviews. So, um, but yes, it's definitely something I want to start keeping track of because I imagine there's a lot of information and there's so many of these topics that, you know, um, even myself reading, you know, mythology and folklore, I have this aversion because it's just such a nasty history, as we all know. Um, but there, there is something to gain from it. You know, you, you get some insight into how people were thinking, even if it is racist and bigoted, as we will find out in some of the stories that we will read. And I want to give a content warning um, racism is a fact, right? None of us in here are new or strangers to the idea that there are some people who are deeply prejudiced. And we are reading these stories today not to reinforce them, but just to explore how people thought about things in the past, how some of these beliefs might persist into the present. And being so informed, how we can, you know, do the work of defanging them, for lack of a better way of putting it. So that being said, how about we lighten things up a bit before we go into the deeper, you know, heavier stuff? So there's this story from the Balinyonga people. Uh, the Balinyonga are one of the major uh, people in the northwest region of Cameroon. Um, they they are pretty large. They are part of a wider system. So there is like Balinyonga, Baligangsing, Baligashu. They have a common um, ancestor, common um a common line that they descend from and a very distinctive culture with festivals and a whole bunch of things. So if you go to Cameroon and talk about Bali, that would be one of the you know more recognizable people. And they were also one of the people who um, had a lot of encounter with German explorers and ended up bitterly resisting them um, to, to, no, to, no, to no positive end ultimately because uh, the country was colonized. But when, when Zingraf... Uh, Zingraf is one of the famous um, German explorers. I think his first name is Gustav or something like that. Zingraf? We, we always just call him Zingraf in Cameroon. And one of the funny things is because he wore glasses, it was a joke when we were at school that if you wore glasses, you were Zingraf. So you'd literally be called Zingraf if you wore glasses. So, um, But this, this, this story comes out of Zingraf's encounter with the fawn of Bali. The fawn is the king. So um, in the northwest region of Cameroon and the northwest and western region of Cameroon, we, we don't have, that's where I'm from, by the way, we don't have uh, kingdoms, we have fondoms. So the, the fawn is the king and there's a rich tradition of what all of that entails. But um, this is a story. And this this is from a book called... Uh, the book is called Intersections. Hold on, let me make sure I have that right. Sorry, I have it pulled up on Google Books. So it's 
through African crossroads, intersections between history and anthropology in Cameroon. So then, all right, where are you now? Sorry, guys, I lost my page. Never mind. Okay. Okay. So, according to Pa Nyaka, an informant at Ashon, Zingra's party emerged from the forest at Enwin. The phone of Ashon sent palm wine and color nuts to the strangers, along with escorts, to bring Zingra to the site of the old Ashon palace, a place called Gakurochuchen, that is, the place near the mouth of the forest. Informants say that the old palace was also a marketplace. And Muyenga, the Zingraf's guide, had guided Zingraf to, to a trade friend of the Balinyonga, the Fon Eno of Ashong. When such a large party led by a European arrived at Ashong, the news quickly passed to surrounding villages. Zingraf was given a house near the Ashong marketplace, and on the 13th of January, Many of the surrounding village heads came to Ashong, some of them to attempt to persuade the Ashong villagers to kill Zingraf and sell his party into slavery. On 14 January, a band of 200 armed men arrived from an unidentified village, perhaps Pinin, which is another village in the northwest region. And according to Zingraf, despite the arrival of such a large group, all remained peaceful. The fond of Balinyonga had heard of Zingraf's arrival and sent many people to meet him, but they were afraid to approach him. Pa Ibrahim Tituan of Balinyonga heard the story of Zingraf's arrival from his father, Ngo Sama, a servant to Fon Galega, who was the Fon at the time. The news was that an unknown thing had come to Ashong with a skin that was red like fire. Ngo Sama went for a closer look and returned to tell the Fon. Galega then ordered a drink called Fuga to be prepared. Fuga is made from maize and groundnuts, which are ground and mixed with water. The mixture was then put into a calabash of corn beer. Gosama was instructed to take it to Zingraf. If the man drank, they would know that he was really a man. Gosama did as he was told, and according to the story, Zingraf drank, proving that he was a man and not an animal. When Balinyonga heard what had happened, Gosama was ordered to go back to Ashong with a group and return with Zingraf. And what, what cracks me up about this story is just the fact that this guy, you know, being white in the hot African tropical forest was just so flushed that, you know, that, that became his legacy, the memory of him with skin red like fire. But there is a story that has come out of this because, um, and I, I can't find this story. I remember hearing it growing up and I've read it at least in one place but there's a story about how this all got incorporated into the worldview of the Bali people and it talks about how when the the creator being the Bali creator being created the world um, people were in trees and the different trees had different colors so there were black trees there were red trees there were white trees and they all were together and things were good until something happened and then they got dispersed all over the land. And that's why we have, you know, people 
it's, it's just such an interesting story and i've been since last week i've been trying to find this story so i could read it to you guys but i i haven't so but this this is this is where that whole you know bread thing comes from and I, I always thought it was funny how, you know, in many cases, they weren't even sure that, you know, the, the white folks who showed up were human beings, which I think is hilarious, um, but also kind of sad given how, you know, people, uh, uh, black people, African people ended up being de- dehumanized, you know, in, in, the, in the subsequent years. And this is fairly recent history, too. So the person, the, the informant um, so was alive to tell this story to his son, and that's who this story was collected from. So it, it's fairly recent history um, in, in many cases. And of course, goes back to what Laura was saying, like, do we include these things as folklore? But then I imagine people reading this 500 years from now would probably not really question if it's folklore or even mythology. But any, any thoughts on this story? Well, I love the fact that it, it plays with that idea that we use these terms black and white when those aren't even necessarily the right mm. color terms to use. And so that this guy is is red and that's presumably what they saw. And so they saw red. It wasn't about looking for white and seeing white. They just saw what they saw, which was this man's sunburnt. So. Exactly. Exactly. And there's another hilarious uh, joke that is often told about how... Um, I think this is a South African man who is just commenting on how ridiculous the concept of race is. And he says, well, you, you call us colored, right? He's talking to a white man. Uh, Emmanuel, just, you, do you want to go first before I tell the story? Uh, no, no, I don't know the story. So maybe finish that one. I just have a joke around this, but okay. yeah. All right. So it, it's a story where the, the guy is joking and, he says, well, you call us colored, but who is the colored one in this equation? You white folks, when the sun is out, you're red. When you're cold, you're white. When you're sick, you're blue. When you're really sick, you're green. When you die, you're gray. So who is colored in this equation? And it's just like, he, you know, when you bruise, you're purple. And he goes down this line. <laughs> He goes down this long. I have, I have to find this. Hold on. Uh, Emmanuel, do you want to go ahead while I find this? Because I think it's worth reading. Yeah, no, I know. I, actually, uh, that's actually interesting. Because as, as you narrate the various, like, colors, you're like, you know what? You're not wrong. It kind of makes sense, you know? But, like, with a joke I had in mind, so I'm from Ghana, and we had this joke whereby it's like, if you're on your way to church on a Sunday and you see a white man, just go back home, all right? Because once you've seen him, you've seen Jesus. That Whoa. kind of thing. And... and <laughs> It's just like, you know, the thought of that. It's like, oh, you've seen a deity if you see a white man. Like, if you've seen a white man on your way to church, you don't need to go to church. You're done. Go back home. Oh, right, you've seen God. Jesus himself. <laughs> All right. So we have someone who that, well, just first of all, sorry, I'm being distracted by someone who really, really, really wants to talk. But this account. All right. Hi, John. Can you hear us? Hi, John. Okay, you gotta go. That's what I thought. Sorry about that, guys. That's cool, Helen. So you have the power to do that. Yes, I do have the power to do that. I do have the power to do that. You were like super fast. Yeah. No, because this, this person came in and just like repeatedly was requesting permission to speak. And that's, I, I should, I, I should know better. <laughs> 
I should know better. But then I try to make this space as inclusive as I can possibly make it. So as we were saying, it's so, and this, this is the challenge with jokes that, or with stories and jokes that have to do with race from, you know, because quite often they play into the stereotypes, you know, and there, there's a part of me that I'm thinking, you know, back in the day when these stories were being coined, quite often these people were not, probably didn't even know what was coming, you, you know, and that's the tragedy of it, right? It was at a time when, you know, it was still trade relationships. And of course, there were tensions. Of course, there were probably like, you know, things that people were saying and doing that was causing, you know, the Africans or, you know, more sympathetic Europeans to go, this is, this will, this will end in tears. But I imagine it was just jokes, you know, until it was no longer funny, Um, which to me is why these stories deserve to be examined, you know. Um, to be retold, as I did with The Brightest Sun, um, and to be challenged, to take the sting out of them, to take the fang out of them, and then eventually to be abandoned, because at one point we will have to let that let all that go, right? And tell new stories, tell different stories. Laura? One thing I wanted to bring in, it's a different kind of folktale type, but I think it could be part of this discussion. In the world of animal folktales, one of my favorite types, and you find it all over Africa and in other places in the world too, is when the animals first meet man and they've never seen man before. And so one of the animals will actually already know something about man, like rabbit or someone like that. And he'll lead some big, strong animal like the bear or the lion, depending on where the story is being told, to face man and get shot by him by a gun. And um, and that kind of story isn't about race per se, but it's about that first encounter in a in a in a you know dangerous, deadly, dangerous power imbalance. A gun is involved, technology. So it's not presented as race, but it is a kind of first encounter type of folktale. Mm-hmm. So you've got me thinking I should put together a collection of those because I bet we could learn something from looking at the variations in those stories too. I, I, I think so, too. I think so, too. I absolutely think so, too, Laura. And that's, that's uh, I see you, uh, Nathan, so in just a moment here. That's been the most, well, one of the, because there are plenty, one of the best things about working with myths and folklore, because, yes, they are stories, but they're such important stories because they encode so much of past experience that, you know, you might not have the history right there in front of you, but you have a sense of what people were thinking and how they were feeling um, that's in these stories. So, you know, I will blast it to the ends of the earth if you put together such a collection. So, yep, let's do it. Let's do it. Nathan? And and I'd be happy to read that collection. Um, have Have you seen the uh, artwork from the from 16th century Japan when the Portuguese first arrived? It's the the artwork of the first meeting with 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 white people. I have not. Has anybody it's, else in the room? It's kind of amazing stuff. Uh, the white folks are depicted as red with huge noses. They basically look like the Japanese conception of an ogre. Oh, my gosh. And it, so this sort of thing where the first meeting of, of a different looking sort of people, you, you know, you have, to, you have to fit it into the context that you know. Hmm. 
Mm. Um, and this, this, this story just, just reminded me of that. I just want to add in, to, oh wait, Laura has a hand up. So maybe Laura, you go first. Well, just real quick to say, I'm so glad Nathan brought that up because I was in a folklore course a couple months ago when we read a Tengu story from Japan. And the person who collected this story made exactly that point that the the Tengu, especially because it's a big red-nosed, red-beaked uh, kind of demon creature, sometimes mm -hmm. is exactly equated with Europeans because of that big nose, red nose, beaky type nose. And I'd totally forgotten about that, but that sounds like it would fit in perfectly uh, with what you're talking about, Nathan. That's something I'm going to have to go go check out because Japanese, I love Japan, by the way. It's one of those, like, you know how you have a group of people who you're just like, I like you guys. I like your art. I like your humor. You guys are interesting. It's one of my dream places to visit. Um, and uh, the story of Yasuke, the, the African man who became a samurai, he is one of my favorite characters in, in African folklore. So that's, which, you know, if we want to talk about illustrations, talk about, you know, playing into stereotypes and how he was depicted um, in, in the, the, the pictures that come out of Japan, like the old pictures of him, plays into every single stereotype about Black people. <laughs> That you can imagine, it's it's quite tragic, actually. Um, but hey, I found the quote, and it is not by an African person. It is from a Native um, American person called Oglala Lakota, and it's just as hilarious. So he goes, well, I'm going to read it as it is. When I'm born, I'm black. When I grow up, I'm black. When I'm in the sun, I'm black. When I'm sick, I'm black. When I die, I'm black. But you, when you're born, you're pink. When you grow up, you're white. When you're cold, you're blue. When you're sick, you're blue. When you die, you're green. And you dare call me colored. But now I'm a bit confused. So either Goodreads has their attribution wrong or... But that's, that's, that's the... Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Now I'm seeing something else that is attributed, attributing this same statement to Leopold Senghor, who is a well-known, I believe he was Senegalese. Yeah, he was a Senegalese philosopher and I believe he was president, if I'm not mistaken. I'm going to lean towards Leopold because the the first source I read this from said this was a black person. So Goodreads has to Goodreads has to update has to update their attribution here. So interesting, yeah, because it would make sense for a native person to be talking about how they are black. And I'm looking at a picture of Oglala Lakota, and I don't believe I don't believe this. This is this is an accurate attribution. All right, I take it back. Leopold Senghor is who it's from. But yeah, just playing on the, the whole notion of color, right? And what, what it really means. Um, Laura, then we'll move on to the next story. Yeah, one thing just quickly about Native American perceptions of whites, since even if it was a misattribution, you kind of brought that up indirectly. One of the things that, of course, fascinates me is that there are accounts of whites 
seen as coyote, seen as the trickster, mm -hmm. as someone disruptive, as someone chaotic, as someone mm -hmm. greedy, as someone dangerous. And if anyone finds anything like that for Africa, where a first encounter is conceived in terms of that trickster identity being projected onto the Europeans, I would love to know about it. So if anybody sees anything like that, please let me know, because the, the Native Americans seeing the Europeans as uh, monsters like the Wendigo or as mm -hmm. tricksters like Coyote, I've, I've got multiple examples of that, but I would love to find something like that for Africa if it's out there, but I haven't found it. I've been looking. So if people can help me look, I would be so grateful. You know, you're talking, Laura, and there's something just teasing. You know how that happens? Like something is just like tickling the edge of my memory. I know I've seen something like that somewhere. So I will put my brain to the task. And as soon as I have it, I'll make sure you, I'll make sure it gets to you. Because there has to be. There absolutely has to be. There is no way. <laughs> there is no way something like that is not out there. All right. So welcome to everyone who is new. I see you, Keeks. I see you, Cameron. Uh, we are talking about stories from African mythology and folklore that feature race, um, either explicitly or kind of, sort of, uh, allude to it. We've read two stories so far. Um, we've read The Origin of Death from the Kunu people in Guinea, um, which talks about how Earth was created and populated as well. And then we've read about the encounter between the Balinyonga people and German explorers in Graf and the stories that uh, food from that but how about we read this story from Libya and this story is called The Brightest Sun and I found it on this amazing website called Salt and Seal and it's just an exploration into Libyan culture and folklore and I have the link to that in um, in the in the area in the uh, our discussion place so if you want to read that um, please do but also this story is retold in uh, my upcoming book, The Runaway Princess and Other Stories. And my retelling picks up from where it ends in this story. And we see what happens to the girls, you know, after everything that happens in this story happens. It's a bit of a teaser. And if you don't know what I am talking about, then I am going to... Uh, let me do this before, so I should have done this before. I'm going to share about it in here. This is the promo video for the book. Um, we ran a very successful Kickstarter campaign and it was, uh, it was, you know, fully funded. So I finished writing the stories. They're being edited. We're shooting for publication in January. And we're on track for that, but I will keep you um, all appraised. So just sharing a couple of links, excerpts from the book Kickstarter campaign in case you don't know what this is all about. And that being done, we're going to read the story. So The Brightest Sun and the storytellers, the original storytellers, are Salima Al-Sadek Abu Kashim. Hope I'm saying that right. Okay. May God curse the devil and keep us safe from his schemes. There is a man who is married to two young women. One is white, the other black. The white woman ridicules the other for her color and constantly reminds her, you're only a servant. 
Each one of the women had a daughter. The black woman sends food to the white woman. She doesn't let her daughter eat it or even taste it. When she gets it, she tosses it away for the dogs and says, beware of her food, it makes you sick. When the white daughter visits the black woman, she gives her candy and lets her play with her own daughter. But when the black daughter visits the white woman, she strikes her and throws her out. The white woman tells people bad things about the black woman, and as the saying goes, two wives wreck a man's home. In time, the daughters grow up and become young women, wearing Rida, that's the traditional um, quote, turning men's head in the village. And the white daughter turned up just like her mother. She hated her black sister. She constantly ridiculed her too, and she always reminded her, you're only a servant, just like your mother. But one day, the black mother sent her daughter to the hamlet to bring her eggs because she had a chicken that was eager to lay on some eggs. But it is unlucky to have a rooster. And as you know, eggs without a rooster can't make a chicken. But the hamlet was far away. You can only have a glimpse of it from the distance if you were lucky. And while she was walking down the road, she passed a thirsty palm tree with a small well to her side. The palm tree said to the black daughter, Quench my thirst, young woman. May God quench yours by the spring of Zamzam. So she quenched her thirst, giving her two or three pills of water from that small well. And after drinking the water, the palm tree said to the black daughter, May my length be in your hair, not in your stature. And as she left the palm tree, her hair grew beautiful and long and reached the ground. As she continued on her way to the hamlet, she passed a black crow laying on the ground, wailing because of a broken wing. And he said to her, splint my broken wing, may God mend your soul. So she splinted his broken wing. And after that, the crow said to her, may God put my duskiness in your eyes, not in your collar. As she left the crow, her eyes turned black and beautiful as the night. As she continued on her way to the hamlet, she passed a vulture lying on the ground, crying because of a broken leg. She said to her, splint my broken leg, may God mend your soul. So she splinted the vulture's leg, and after that the vulture said to her, May my whiteness be in your collar, not in your eyes, and may you have the brightest hue as that of a sun falling at sunset. And as she left the vulture, her collar turned reddish-white, like a sun falling at sunset. Eventually the black daughter reached the hamlet, found some eggs, and brought them back to her mother. When her mother saw her new look, she called her the brightest sun. Jealousy filled the white woman at the sight of the black woman's daughter and her new name. So she said to her daughter, you have to go to the hamlet too and bring me some eggs. I swear to God that the servant's chicken will never lay on the eggs before ours. And perhaps you will return to us more beautiful than the brightest sun. So the white daughter went on her way to the hamlet. And as she was walking, she passed a thirsty palm tree with a small well to her side. The palm tree asked her, quench my thirst, young woman. May God quench yours by the spring of Zamzam. But she drank from the well and left the palm tree thirsty. And the palm tree said to her in anguish, May your length be in your stature and not in your hair. The young woman turned tall as a palm tree at sight, with short, fuzzy hair that couldn't even reach her cheeks. As she continued on her way to the hamlet, she passed a black crow lying on the ground, wailing because of a broken wing. And he asked her, Splint me and may God mend your soul. But instead of splinting the broken wing, she stroked it and he cried in anguish. May my duskiness be in your collar, not in your eyes. And the young woman became the collar of Char on sight. And as she continued on her way to the hamlet, she passed the vulture lying on the ground, crying because of a broken leg. 
And she said to her, Splint my broken leg and may God mend your soul. But she spat on her and the vulture cried in anguish and said to her, May my whiteness be in your eyes, not in your color. And the young woman's eyes turned white as salt. She revealed her true self and was now in disgrace. And because of that, she couldn't continue on her way to the hamlet. Nor could she return to her mother. She was filled with shame and was trapped and lost in between. That is how the story goes. And here I am, and there they were. A lot going on in this story. Any initial thoughts, reactions? Well, that the way that that traditional folktale of the, you know, the good sister and the bad mm-hmm. sister has been adapted and turned into a metamorphosis story. I've never seen anything quite like that, you know, and there's so many of these contrasts between the bad sister and the good sister. You think at some point, all the bad girls out there would have heard one of these stories, right? And they would know better <laughs> and, and would not mistreat all the people and creatures and objects that they meet. But I've never seen one done like race about that. That's intense. It is intense. And and you are absolutely right, Laura. These stories about, you know, two sisters who go on a mission and or two siblings or two friends, they happen over and over. Right off the top of my head, there is a story of the two women. Um, I mean, there's another story in The Runaway Princess, which is similar, but these are two, you know, co-wives. Um, there is the, the, the story of the women who you know, the bird in the trees, the Yoruba story, I think I've told it on um, mythological Africans before and how they treated the bird, you know, resulted in whether or not their children were safe. There is a story, uh, story of five heads from the Zulu in South Africa, where, you know, the sisters were told how to behave when they met the king who was a snake and depending on how they reacted, you know. And in, it just time after time, it's a standard trope across the African continent, across the world. But you are right, Laura, the, the, how this one incorporates race. I, I've never seen anything like it before. And that's why I was like, I have to, I have to. But then how it incorporates race is also interesting, right? Because um, one, unfortunately, one of the places in the world where, you know, racism can really show up in a pretty virulent way is in, you know, the northern part of the African continent and in the Middle East. There is this, you know, way in which people with black skin get treated, which, of course, traces itself back to, you know, the involvement of people from that part of the world in the slave trade, you know, even before slavery started, you know, the transport of people across oceans and lands um, on the West African coast. It was pretty well established on the East African coast, and there was that there was that connection there. Um, and what's interesting, well, interesting but not unexpected is that the the daughter who gets cursed in the story gets cursed with features that are black right the dark skin the not so long flowing fuzzy hair and the 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 girl who who you know becomes beautiful is because of her long flowing hair and her lighter skin and this reflects a lot of the prejudices that still exist right in in the northern part of the african continent matter of fact if i remember correctly um, many of the, the indigenous group, the Amazi, uh, Imazigen, Ima, Imazigen, and um, people in other parts of that, that part of the world, in Mauritania, a lot, a huge part of the disenfranchisement uh, and the marginal, marginalization that they face 
comes out of the fact that they are darker skinned. And of course, there's a history of invasions, um, which, you know, is, is horrible, but is the truth, is the reality that we're living in. And, you know, I don't have, um, I, I know that I follow a couple of people on Twitter who are um, of the Amazi tri uh, tribe and who are actively, you know, activists trying to push back against some of these characterizations and the, the, the way these communities are marginalized. Um, but it's, it's an ongoing issue, as far as I can tell. Um, it's an ongoing issue and it, it's, it's not unique to, to, um, uh, to Libya. The other folktale I have here, which is a bit long and we might not get to it because we are at the top of the hour already, is from Algeria. And in that story, it's a group of children. One of man has several children and one of them is, you know, tagged a Negro in the story. And the whole story is about his brothers plotting to kill him. You know, he is the undesirable one, the unwanted one. And what, what I... What I appreciate about these stories, like I said, is what I appreciate about, you know, folklore is that they give us an insight into what people were thinking, how people were feeling. Um, because quite often you will hear people brush aside the concerns of of folks on the northern in the northern African uh, on the northern part of Africa to say, hey, no, we are not racist. We're sorry you guys, my cat wants attention. Hey girl, you wanna say hi to folks? London. Um, you you get you know this pushback to say hey we are not racist we are not like that, but then you know you read even the folklore and <laughs> it's it's right there this prejudice that exists and but yeah any thoughts on this experience with these stories that seem similar? Yeah, I'm still processing to be honest, like. You know, it's is is you know very deep in the, in the sense that sets an action to what I used to explain like, hey, this is why this is that, and it rules the lives and minds of like a certain group of people in a certain part of the world. Um, it's it's a lot to process. You know, it's it's like, wow, you people like think that way. Like that's that's your reason. Um, but yeah, it's it's the way the world works. Right, the world is interesting that way. It sure is, Emmanuel. It sure is. And what, uh, I see you, Laura, something, and I know I sound like a broken record, you guys, but this is why I take what I do with mythological Africans so seriously. Because as Emmanuel was saying, you find people with certain prejudices sometimes, and they don't even know why they have these prejudices, right? I remember an example here where I shared a story, and someone very gently, thankfully, pointed out to me that the monster in the story was actually referring to albino people. And if you know anything about albinism um, as a condition um, or people with albinism, um, that fairness of skin is what differentiates them from other, you know, uh, uh, black people. And that has been the source of a lot of, you know, trauma and just horrific things happening to people in that community across the continent. So, but then you might just be telling a story then and la, 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 this is folklore without even realizing that. I mean, in this story and in the Algerian one, it's obvious, it's out there, but it certainly bears, you know, noting that you, you want to pay attention to the stories that run around in folklore because if you have a folktale where, you know, being black is just casually described as a curse, it might seem, you know, on the surface like just a story, but there are deeper implications there. Uh, Laura? Well, one of the things that really struck me about this story is that 
one of the reasons I work on animal stories is because with animals in folklore, you can often avoid a lot of the mm. sociological and, and ethnological complications. You get gender stuff with the animals, but but not so much ethnic and, and racial stuff. And it kind of bothers me in the story that the animals have been sucked in to be part of this racialization story because you know what what should a, a vulture care about race and here we have the animals being these instruments of of racialization which really catches me by surprise sometimes you see the crow in that role but but a lot of times like there's the african crows that have the beautiful white feathers around their necks you know so they're not even simple that way uh, in Africa, but I'm just so struck by the way the animals are used in this story. Right, right. And, that, you know, it's, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because the crow and the vulture and the palm tree, um, these are not just any kind of uh, animal in many, many cultures on the African continent and around the world. These are highly symbolic animals, right? They, they When they show up in a story, if you are on the inn, on the, 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 the culture, the language of the culture, you they might very well be speaking to something else and that's what just that always just tantalizes me about folklore because i'm sitting here thinking what is in this story that i'm not getting but you you have to take the story like you hear it so um i retell the story in the runaway princess and it's illustrated by zizian who honestly at this point is probably my favorite african illustrator um he did the cover for the book so I have not seen what he has done, but I've, you know, we're, we're working it through. So I, I just, I can't wait to share the story and the art and everything else um, from that book with you guys. Um, but yeah, this, this, this story definitely, definitely uh, sat with me. A fun fact, the spring of Zamzam, I went and looked that up because I was like this, that, you know, in Cameroon, if uh, someone is called Zamzam, it means they're clumsy, they're clumsy, they're clumsy, they're just kind of all over the place. So <laughs> I thought I thought it was funny, but apparently um, the spring of Zamzam is a highly significant location for um, people who go on pilgrimage to Mecca because it was uh, one of the springs or the spring from which the prophet drank. And uh, I, if I remember correctly, the Zamzam refers to the force with which water was coming out of the ground. And it's a pilgrimage site now, you know, built up. And everything. I, I'll share a link about it later, but I, I wanted to make sure I snuck that that little um, um, fun fact in there. Um, but yeah, I think those are the stories we have time for today. Um, the Algerian story, honestly, I don't want to read it, you know, because it's similar theme. You know, a darker skinned person going through trials because they have dark skin and I, I don't know I think one of those one of those is enough for one of those is enough for the evening but before before we wrap up thoughts questions comments reactions Laura I'm glad you mentioned about the well of Zamzam because one of the things that it's also associated with is a story of Hagar and uh -huh. her position racially, ethnographically, mm -hmm. in Jewish and Christian and Muslim traditions is so complicated and fascinating. So for that Libyan storyteller, too, uh, that Hagar is definitely probably a part of the sort of like cultural background there when they mention Zamzam, not just the prophet, but Hagar, for sure. Right, right. You know, one of the things I'm hoping happens, sorry, this cat is back. Um, one of the things I'm hoping happens um, after this book is released is just to hear people's thoughts, right? Um, they're all, 
well, 15 of the stories are retold and five of them are brand new stories that I tell based on figures and stuff. But I'm really looking forward to hearing just people's reactions to the stories, um, hoping to get a bit more, you know, cultural nuance and culture, uh, cultural nuance and, and um, explanations, because I did the best research I could. But, you know, I probably have 1000 blind spots <laughs> that, that are at work here, especially not being from the culture of some of these stories. So that, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because Hagar, yes, of course, you know, just the position she was in and relative, you know, to Sarai, I believe, um, is one of the major dramas of, of you know, Old Testament um, stories. So, yeah. All right. Friends. Yeah. Um, Emmanuel? Yeah, I just wanted to kind of go a little bit way back to um, the story with uh, death and the rooster and the marriage then. I mm -hmm. just, I didn't share it before, but I thought like, you know, it's might as well put it out there. But like, you know, it's amazing how you can find some similar some similarities be between like some aspects of like African mythology and even Greek mythology. Like, you know, I can't help but think that even with this kind of arrangements going on in that story, it pre the, it pretty much draws parallels with um, you know, with um, Hades, you know, grabbing Persephone and you know the meat mm. person, you know, the earth for like every time that Persephone is away, um, that kind of thing. It's like wow, you know, it's like because. And in the story, it's kind of like Zeus gave Hades the permission to do what he did. So, and Persephone is Zeus's daughter. And it, right. it, it's just like, I couldn't help but like notice those parallels as well. So I just and put that out there. That's, that's, you know, perfectly reasonable. You know, I attended the talk recently um, with the Radical Anthropology Group. It's uh, an, an anthropology group out of UCL in London. And the, the speaker made this interesting point. He said, the reason why myths and folklore from all over the world just end up sounding like the same story being told in different ways by different people is because all of these stories reflect the human experience and they have the basic the same genetic code so he, he basically used the analogy of you know c g t u a i think those are the the letters in the 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 you know the genome of life that in different combinations make up everything that we know as life so he said, you know, the reason why so these stories, you know, whether you're in Australia or in Africa or in, you know, China or Russia or Scandinavia, why so many of these stories end up converging on similar themes is because they have the same basic, you know, come out of the same basic fundamental human experience. And if you look at the flow of human migrations, right, from out of the African continent and then going, you know, through the Red Sea flowing into Asia and then looping back into the Americas and all of that, it makes perfect sense. You know, same general consciousness encountering different experiences and writing stories or telling stories to reflect that. Uh, Laura? Yeah, and I, I uh, just feel obliged to say in terms of ancient Greek mythology, something that classics as a discipline has really suppressed and is only more recently um, been acknowledged is the way that the Greeks were obsessed with Egyptian stories and Egyptian storytelling. Mm. You know, so we tend to think of like the Greek origins of things, but the Greeks thought about the Egyptian origins of things. And there's a wonderful book by someone who is not a classicist, so he could see things in that sense more clearly, uh, Martin Bernal, a book called Black Athena, which is a really mm -hmm. fascinating book, both for uh, the Greek perceptions of 
Egypt in ancient times, and also for the uh, colonial European remaking of Greece in their colonial images. It's a fantastic book, Emmanuel. If if it sounds like you might really enjoy that book, it's Black Athena yes. by Martin Bernal. Yeah, so that's interesting. Like it's it's actually packaged that way. Like Black Athena is like of all the you know the Pantheon. Like you know Athena is my. I don't know if it makes sense to say she's my, you know how they say this, my spirit animal? Like, <laughs> Athena is that, you know, like, that entity for me. You know, her, her affiliations with the owl. Um, so I'm, I'm, def I'm definitely curious. I'm definitely going to look that up now. It sounds like if you lived at the time of ancient Greece, um, Emmanuel, she might not necessarily be your spirit animal, but the one deity that you would, you know, be venerate, would be, you know, affiliated with. Just want to be sensitive around using the term spirit animal here they have yeah yeah true true true, true. <laughs> that's my bad that's my i should know better um <laughs> that's all right true. that's yeah. all right that's all right and it's interesting how like we all you know especially those of us who are into mythology and folklore you'll run into this deity from some culture distant culture and you just you have such an affinity for them and you're thinking why is this this way but you know these these deities, um, whether we're thinking about them as entities, individuals in their own right, or as energies and archetypes that we connect to, they all you know speak to and represent something to the human experience. So it makes perfect sense that we have these these strong feelings about about them. So, and this I know we've talked about this before, Laura, about how a lot of Aesop's fables are so similar to fables that come out of the African continent, but, you know, there is this reluctance to even suggest that, you know, these, these, may, have, these may have flowed from out of the African continent. Um, yeah, I don't know if you want to say something about that. Well, and it, it's just right there in the stories. It's so obvious if you look at just what the stories say. There's African animals all over their mm -hmm. stories. There were Greeks all over North Africa. It shouldn't be surprising, but... Right. Surprisingly, it's surprising to people. Right. The, the one thing that was a bit um, interesting to me is just how much um, symbolism and stories from ancient Egypt find their way into traditional African um, mythologies and cosmologies. And of course, this is because of the many, many migrations that happened you know, back and forth. It only makes sense. We have, you know, forest peoples or quote-unquote pygmies that show up in stories um, about um, from ancient Egypt. So it makes sense that this was all going back. But especially in the women's mysteries. I remember when I did the talk about um, women, the civilizing influence of women um, in African folklore. It was, you know, you have Isis who, you know, bear making and all of that stuff. And it was just showing up over and over and over again in different African mythologies where the, the goddesses or the wise women, you know, were connected to bear making and certain rituals that just pointed right back at Isis. So it's common DNA, common human language, common shared experience. And that's just the beauty of, you know, being in this space because you get to delve into it and enjoy it and build community around it, which I'm really, really grateful for. We are 15 minutes over time, so we're going to wrap up for the evening. Um, I think we should do this again. Um, I'll, I'll try to find more stories. We didn't have a big, big variety, but I really enjoyed the ones we shared today. And we should we should definitely do this again or, you know, more themed readings of folklore because this this was a really good session. So thank you all. Hope you have a great weekend. Please be safe. 
take care of yourselves, take care of your people. And I will see you on the timeline or next Friday at 6 p.m. Thank you all. Have a good evening. If you'd like to participate in these discussions, please follow Mythological Africans on Twitter at Mythic Africans and set a reminder for Friday evenings at 5 p.m.